Our Father, we're thankful tonight for the gift of Scripture, for the fact that truth has been brought to this world in spite of our rebellion and rejection of it, that you have maintained and preserved Scripture down through the centuries, that you've illuminated our hearts to the first of the gospel, that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then illuminated our hearts to the deeper things of the Word of God concerning the Christian way of life. Now we ask that you would illuminate our hearts to the uh, coming uh, of the Lord back again and the culmination of history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been so long, I've forgotten where I was in my notes practically. Um, tonight we're going to finish up uh, pre-tribulationism, and then next week we'll conclude with just a review of the overall framework. So we'll get through that. Um, to, to put this in perspective once again, um, let's remember what we're, what's going on here at the, and the, this whole area of eschatology and the destiny of the church. The, the attempt on all these views is to sort out the biblical data. And since we're dealing with a future event, not one we can see, there is always uncertainties because the prophecies do not give a totality. They don't tell you every little detail is going to happen. No prophecy ever has. God always has room for surprises. That until the event takes place, it's, there's a certain uncertainty about how some of these details fit together. Just like there was uncertainty about the first and second advent of Christ. But as we said before, going through the Old Testament, there's the nation of Israel. And then there's the church. And the church obviously has a different character than Israel. Israel was a physical entity with a land, a nation, had its own laws, uh, was made up of only Jews or Gentiles who had become Jews by, through ritual and circumcision and so forth. Um, the church, however, is made up of a subset of Israel who have recognized the Messiahship of Jesus and is made up of Gentiles who have also come to that conclusion. So the two entities are different. And so what the problem is, is that Israel has one destiny. The church has a destiny. And you find out about Israel's destiny in the Old Testament and amplified in the New Testament. You find out about the church's destiny only in the New Testament. So now the problem is, how, if the destiny is the end of history, how do you mix these two together and come up with some sort of rational thing that honors the scripture? And that's what all these views are about. And we know from the Old Testament that Israel looked forward to a time of the kingdom on earth. And Israel was to have this destiny and there was to be a time of tribulation prior to that kingdom. And then there was to be the kingdom. And as time went on, it became ever so more clear that the Messiah, there would be a Messiah first, and the Messiah of Israel would turn out to be the long-promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3. And the Messiah was therefore tied to the earlier Gentiles. And this messianic coming was to come at the end of this time of trouble to deliver Israel. You always want to remember that. Why was the Messiah to come? The theme was the deliverance of Israel and the beginning of the kingdom. 
Of course, we have preterists now who are arguing that the coming of the Messiah has nothing to do with Israel. The coming of the Messiah, some of them believe, happened in AD 70. Not too many people noticed it. Uh, but nevertheless, they claim that it happened and that therefore all these prophecies are metaphor, metaphors. And the, the big thing about it is, is that they don't see the advent of the Messiah as a delivering presence. They see it as a condemning presence, as a judgment of Israel, exactly opposite to the way the theme of the Old Testament portrays it. So here's the Messiah. He comes. Now, the church is said, oh, and then and then there'll be a judgment and then believers will stay in the kingdom and unbelievers will be rejected. The godly will be inherit the kingdom and the ungodly will be removed. And that's why John the Baptist had that picture of the of the shovel and the grain. And it's the chaff that's blown away. And what comes back is the grain. So that's consistent. So there's a consistency to this Old Testament picture that the kingdom is going to be inherited by believers. Well, but when you come to the church and its prophecy, the church is said to go along in history. And then uh, at a certain point in time, every believer will be transformed and dead unbelievers, uh, dead believers will have their souls reunited with their bodies. And so they go to to be with the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church has promised to be rules, rulers into the kingdom and so forth. But the idea here is there's no mention of any tribulation. There's a direct transformation of everybody that's ever been a Christian is transformed into resurrection status. So here's the dilemma. If at this point all church age believers equal resurrection bodies, then that means at that point there are no people left on earth who are believers in non-resurrected bodies. If every believer by definition has been transformed or resurrected, there aren't any more believers in history with resurrection bodies. But the problem is that this kingdom seen in the Old Testament has death in it. It's true, it's death after a hundred years or after for punishment and so on, but the, the kingdom is not conceived to, ha- to be a kingdom uh, with, with immortal bodies. The kingdom blends off into the eternity with immortality, obviously, because there is a resurrection in the Old Testament. But the Messianic kingdom as it comes, if we are to take it literally, if we are to use a literal hermeneutic to those scriptures, we have to come up with a conclusion out of the Old Testament that the kingdom is populated by people in mortal bodies. Well, if the people are, if this is in natural bodies, NB, then how do you mix the two destinies? And that's the crux of this whole thing. And that's why we said down through this, this, these weeks is you can go one of two ways here. And you want to understand there's many different permutations and combinations, but there's only two stable ones. Either you blend Israel and the church together, and then because the church is in resurrected body, you simply make this kingdom the eternal state. There isn't really a messianic kingdom. And that would mean amillennialism. So if you mix the two together, you wind up with amillennialism. 
And that's somehow, it's partly consistent. But once you do that, you've abandoned a literal hermeneutic. So to get there, you've, uh, you've eliminated the literal hermeneutic. If, however, you keep the literal hermeneutic, that prevents you from mixing the church and Israel because of this resurrection body issue and a few other issues. So now you wind up as a pre-tribulationist who believes that the rapture has to occur here. And then there are seven years after that, plus maybe gaps in there. We don't know. Uh, and then you come into the kingdom. So tonight we're going to go again. We'll start. I'll re- just review pages 137 and 138 in the notes. Uh, to get running start again. And... Um, And then we'll go through the four problems of pre-tribulationism. Remember, we've gone through a number of views. Uh, We've gone through post-tribulationism, mid-tribulationism, three-quarter tribulationism, and now we're on pre-tribulationism. So let me draw a picture of the chart. Again, Daniel's 70th week, so you have seven years. You have the Antichrist at the beginning. You have the covenant that started with the nation Israel, and then you have the second advent at the end of that seven-year period. So, in pre-tribulationism, you have the church raptured at some point prior to that, and whether there's a gap in there, we don't know. Could be. There's no necessity that a split second after the church is raptured that the Antichrist has to make a covenant with Israel there. Um, So... Um, so there's, that's flexibility. So and bottom of page 137 on the notes, that's where I kind of summarize in one paragraph uh, the, the highlights of pre-tribulationism. I say second sentence of that paragraph on the bottom of page 137. It clearly solves the problem of keeping the church from the wrath of God in a way compatible with Revelation 3.10. Because in Revelation 3.10, one of the promises is, I will keep you not from tribulation, I will keep you from the time, the hour of tribulationism. Second, it maintains the entire 70th week as a time of judgment focused upon Israel and the nations, as presented in the Old Testament. Remember, all the other views where you're bringing the church, instead of rapturing it out ahead of it, you bring the church into the tribulation and you get it out either at the midpoint, you can get it out at the three-quarter point, or you persist all the way to the end. When you do that, you have to add in to the scheme of things, how can that be when the tribulation is the expression of the wrath of God? How do you say that the church is in it but not subject to the wrath of God. And that's been the, the falling point, the stumbling block on all these other positions. Is that through one way or another, they have to deal with this problem. Either they try to make the tribulation parts of it, not the wrath of God, which seems a little silly since all the judgments of, of the tribulation are the breaking of the seals in, in Revelation 5 and 6. Um, surely that's the wrath of God. Or they have to say that the church is somehow divinely protected. But if the church is divinely protected, the problem you have with that is, is that there's martyrdom going on in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. How is that protection? So either way you slice it, if you bring the church into the tribulation, you've got some interpretive problems that have created there. It's not smooth sailing. There's some very serious problems. 
Okay, so looking at pre-tribulationism, we say the second point is that it maintains the 70th week of Daniel. So you can say, keep, this, keep the Old Testament scheme, those are seven years of the wrath of God. And you don't have the problem because the church is exited before that. So you don't have the problem of the church having to be protected from the wrath of God during the wrath of God. Third thing, it allows enough time for the Bema Seat Judgment and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb to occur prior to the church returning of Christ at the end of the 70th week. So there are these things that have to be fulfilled. The judgment of the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which is spoken of in, in the book of Revelation where the church is looked upon as the bride of Christ and is made ready to come with him at the second advent. Then third thing, fourth thing in that paragraph, it permits a literal interpretation of the millennial kingdom starting with people in natural bodies. Now, people can differ from the pre-trib position. All I'm saying is that if you do, then certain consequences necessarily follow, whether you like it or not. They just logically follow when you have to cope with those. Also, I say at the bottom, page 137, is that pre-tribulationism raises the issue of imminency. And that is the idea, page 138, that the rapture comes suddenly without warning. There's a blessed hope Paul says, a blessed hope. And the church is directed to look to that blessed hope. Church is not directed to look for the Antichrist. The church is look, directed to look at the Christ. So the imminency means that we don't have signs necessarily predicting the rapture. Now, certain things can happen. Certain prophecies can happen. Obviously, Israel has come back into the land. Um, and you're going to see the, the present historical state in which we live right now. I mean, this year, right now, this month, uh, you're having the split start to show up within evangelicalism because uh, those who are replacement theologians, those who have come out of the reform position who don't accept pre-tribulationism. And what do we know that they don't accept if they don't accept pre-tribulationism? They don't accept the literal hermeneutic of prophetic scriptures. Well, people like D. James Kennedy and those people are now coming out and saying that uh, the, the idea that Israel is to be in the land is total misreading of the scriptures and so on. And, and that's because out, speaking out of an amillennial and postmillennial position, uh, Israel had no future. And so it's incidental whether they're in the land or out of the land. And so that's one of the great divides. And you're going to watch this unfold this year, month after month, as you see in the press, because it's the issue of the establishment of a Palestinian state, uh, again, with Israel. And the question that you'll see people um, try to make a big apologetic for the existence of the Palestinian state. And, of course, there are historical reasons why it's kind of a silly idea. Never had a Palestinian state before. When the Arabs were all under Jordan, nobody wanted a Palestinian state then. Suddenly we have a Palestinian state. Well, better be well policed because I tell you, if the new Palestinian state is going to breed terrorists and one of the commentators say, me go boom vests, uh, and these guys come into Israel with these things, Israel is going to be coming back into the Palestinian state and it won't be much longer. So that's the situation. But within evangelical Bible-believing Christianity, you're going to see a split because you're going to see a group 
speaking out against Israel from within the evangelical Bible-believing group. Well, when that happens, don't be shocked. That's the logical result of a non-pre-tribulational theology, of a non-dispensational theology. It just follows. It's not like these people suddenly got together in a hate Israel campaign. It's just that the inherent logic of their position drives them to that position, just as the inherent logic of dispensationalism looks to a fulfillment of the nation Israel. When Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to a nation, Israel, a nation that has sabbatical laws. Because what did Jesus say? Pray that I not this thing not happen on the Sabbath. Well, who cares if it happens on a Sabbath in, in the United States? Nobody cares about that because we don't have sabbatical laws. Stores are open on Saturday like they are any other time. Gas stations are open on Saturday like they are at any other time. We don't have sabbatical laws. So when Jesus says, beware and pray that this not happen on a Sabbath day, he's talking about some national entity where there are laws that control travel on sabbatical days. Well, it's not going to be Russia. Who do you suppose it's going to be? It's going to be Israel taking over the Old Testament legislation. So, so there are various reasons why, of course, we, we hold the fact that not saying everything Israel does is, is good. We're not saying every Jew is a believer. Messianic Jews do live in Israel. All we're saying is that the nation Israel has a role to play in history under God's sovereignty, and it's going to play it, period. Now, there are four problems with pre-tribulationism, and I outlined those in the middle paragraph on page 138. And we're going to go into some of the scripture connected with those tonight. We'll review Matthew 24, and we'll go into 2 Thessalonians 2. But there are basically four objections to pre-tribulationism historically. One is that it's a historical thing, that they're arguing that it was just in the mind of a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby. And it's sort of a cultic thing that just started in the 1800s. In particular, they like to tell stories about some crazy lady in England um, that had these prophetic visions in 1830. And that uh, Darby somehow got influenced by this 17-year-old girl that's hallucinating, and that was supposedly the origin of dispensationalism. Second one is critics have argued that dispensationalism misinterprets Matthew 24. Third is that it misinterprets 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the fourth one is that it advocates an escapism for the church. Those are very popular things. You'll see them over and over. I've gone through the, uh, the first two uh, so far. Uh, briefly on page 138, reviewing the first objection. It's historically false that pre-tribulationism began in 1830. If you read the biography of Darby's life, you realize by dated letters that he had already thought of the idea in 1827, three years prior to this hallucinating 17-year-old girl, plus the fact that uh, people who have looked at her supposed prophecies in 1830, they're not pre-tribulational prophecies. So, I mean, that goes that down the drain. You also notice in that paragraph, I mentioned that guys like Morgan Edwards had already, were very close to pre-tribulationism. And look at his date, 1722 to 1795. And the thing that is the icing on the cake is further on down, you notice the date A.D. 306 to A.D. 373. 
This is a guy by the name of Ephraim. He's a, East, a church a theologian in the Eastern Church in Syria. And uh, he wrote about not only a rapture, he wrote about a seven year tribulation. And that document has recently been found in the last five or six years. So that's a new I was going to find the date of the document. I can't find the book I've got the quote from. But nevertheless, the book is footnoted there. And I'm going to see if I can get another copy on Amazon.com. But um, that book is a basic reference tool for that particular document. Page uh, 139, we're talking about Matthew 24. Now let's turn to Matthew 24. Once again, this is the, the Amman Olivet Discourse. Everybody goes to Matthew 24 to see what Jesus teaches about his second coming, which is fine. And what people do with Matthew 24, among those who aren't thinking through the details of prophecy so that they fit together in a rational way, they read down through Matthew 24 and they see things like um, um, 6, verse 6, talks about wars and rumors of wars. Um, it talks about, by the way, that was the passage, verse 8. See, in verse 8, what's the metaphor used in verse 8? Observe the text. It's pregnancy, delivering a baby. And that proves that the whole seven-year period is a time of tribulation because the birth pangs, that, con that metaphor birth pang, it's not just the second half of the tribulation, it's the whole thing. Because the second half of the tribulation doesn't begin until verse 15. So you've got the birth pangs before verse 15, which says then that the entire seven-year period is conceived as the delivery of the baby. Baby being the kingdom of God. And the paroxysms in the, in the environment, the earthquakes and famines, verse 7, are all part of the pain that the earth geophysical system fails. It's not just people having problems in the tribulation. It's the whole geophysical environment having problems. It's as though the creation is one with man in the sense that it too senses the coming of the Lord. The creation itself senses the coming of the Lord. And so there are all these catastrophes. Then in verse 15, the Lord Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Now he's referencing Jan Daniel 9 that talks about the seven year period. And that passage establishes that abomination of desolation. If you have a study Bible, you can see where, where Jesus is getting that passage from. So he comes right out of the very prophecy, prophetic scripture that we've been talking about in the tribulation. So he says, when you see that standing in the holy place and the holy place, according to Daniel, is what? Washington, D.C., Moscow. London? No, it's Jerusalem. The holy place is the temple that is in Jerusalem. That's how Daniel reads. See, that's why I mean you've got to go back to the Old Testament passages and see what the text said back there. How would they have understood it in Daniel's day? They would have understood it as a literal, physical temple on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. So all this is Jerusalem-centered. 
Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Him who is on the housetop, not go down to get things that are in his house. But woe to those with child, those who nurse bays. Pray your flight not be in the winter or on a Sabbath day when, the, when there's travel restrictions of one sort or another. So the idea there is, Jesus said, when you start seeing that thing happen, just know that your evacuation is called for and get out of the way because things are coming. That's the midpoint of Daniel's period. There will be a great tribulation. Now, that's where that word, remember, tribulation, some of the people pick, 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 and say, well, you can't use the word tribulation for the entire seven years, only the last three and a half. Well, it's true, right here in verse 21, the great tribulation is that second three and a half year period. But but theologians have taken the word tribulation in general to refer to the seven years, like we talk about the Trinity. Trinity is not in the Bible either. It's not a problem, as long as you understand the definition of the label. Um, and so he goes on and describes what happens. And then in verse 29, the next major paragraph, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky. And that's a quotation. And if you, again, have a study Bible, where is the quotation taken from? Look in the little margin and see. And I think you'll see it comes out of the Old Testament. And what author in the Old Testament comes out of? Daniel. So again, Jesus is following the outline of the Old Testament here. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds. Now, gathering together the elect goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. So the point here is that nothing Jesus has said up to verse 31, and after that too, nothing in this Matthew 24 passage differs by an iota from what the Old Testament has consistently laid out. Now just think about this. It will help you think this through. Because there's Christians today that want to mix the church inside Matthew 24. Now, just wait a minute here. Think. If Jesus isn't changing the Old Testament framework, rather he continues it, the church isn't in the Old Testament, is it? Because it didn't happen until Pentecost. So if he's continuing the Old Testament, there should be no surprise that the church isn't in Matthew 24. Because Matthew 24 is Jesus' exposition of the Old Testament prophecies about what? About the destiny of Israel. So it it should make sense that people want to read the church into this chapter. And it just, it doesn't work. So in the bottom of page 139 and the top of page 140, I give you figure 11 where I show you what is going on here. And last time we met together, we went through Zechariah 14. In fact, I think we ought to go back there because maybe some weren't here when we did that. So turn back in the Old Testament to Zechariah 14, toward the end of the Old Testament. One of the two books begins with Z. Zechariah 14. Now, if you look while you're reading Zechariah 14 to figure 11 on the top of page 140... And notice the flow of the boxes. That's Zechariah's view. Now, we're going to go to Zechariah. We're going to see what Zechariah taught 
in the Old Testament to Jews of the nation Israel. Zechariah verses 1 and 14, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against, not London, not Washington, not Moscow. I will direct all nations against Jerusalem, centered on Israel. To battle, the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So the first box on the top of page 140 summarizes verses 1 and 2. The Gentiles come to destroy Jerusalem. Okay? That's the first major action in this passage. Now we go to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. Now what are those nations? Those is a demonstrative pronoun Going back to some antecedent now. Uh, so what, what's going on here? It's a demonstrative verb, I mean an adjective. Going back and referencing a certain subset of nations. What nations? The nations in the context. Who are the nations in the context? Verse 2. The nations that have come against Israel. And the Lord is going to fight against those nations. Not like the preterists are saying. The Lord doesn't come to destroy Israel the opposite. The Lord is coming to destroy the nations who have come against Israel. Okay, he comes to that, and in that day, verse 4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, where was Jesus standing when he preached Matthew 24? He was standing on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle, from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other toward the south. A geophysical thing happens. You know, metaphor, it's not a metaphorical interpretation. And how do I know? It's, it's, it's a literal interpretation. The mountain will split in half. How do I know it's going to split in half? This isn't talking about the politics are going to dissolve into two parties. Democrats in the north and Republicans in the south or something. See, see how silly that kind of interpretation gets. The mountain literally splits in half. Why? Just look at the next verse. It tells you why you've got to interpret verse 4's geophysical stuff literally. Why? Because as you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azale, yes, you will flee just as you did what? Just as you fled in the day of a political disturbance or a literal earthquake. A literal earthquake. And you can go back. If you look at a study Bible, you'll see where that comes from in the Old Testament. You can go back to that passage and you can see it was a real earthquake. So these aren't to be interpreted as political disturbances. They're ge geologic disturbances. They're literal. They're real. They happen at this point in time. So in your box on the top of page 140, what is the second action in the, in the Zechariah concept? That when the Gentiles come to destroy Jerusalem, the Messiah is going to come to Mount of Olives to rescue the city. Okay? And then it goes on in verse 4, all the geophysical things. It goes on 7, a unique day known to the Lord. Neither day nor light, but it come about at the evening time there will be light. See, that's the same thing Jesus talking about in Matthew 24. And, and it will come... So, okay, so... 
the third box on the top of page 140 is astronomical and geophysical catastrophes accompany the return of the Lord. And then in verse 9 and following, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain. Not only will the Lord Jesus come back, but it's saying that there will be geophysical adjustments to the land. You can't have metaphor in verse 10 without having metaphor in verse 4 and 5. So if you're going to be literal in verses 4 and 5, you've got to be literal in verse 10. There's going to be a literal changing of the terrain at that point. I just love to have some of my friends from geology watch this. It doesn't take a million years to move some rocks. This is going to happen very fast. This is cat- catastrophic. Now, on the box, on the top of page 140, you see the fourth action. The messianic kingdom and world peace come. Now, if you just cover up the Jesus view, the four boxes underneath for a moment, and just look at those four boxes, that was what was going on in the mind of the disciples. So when Jesus, forget to get Jesus view here now, just look at the top four boxes of Zechariah. If you thought that way, and you heard the Lord Jesus say, guys, you look at this temple, there's not going to be a rock left. This temple is going to go. Now, if you just had those four top boxes, which box would you be thinking of if you heard the Lord Jesus say, this temple's going down? What would you associate that with? You'd associate with the first box, wouldn't you? When the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And why would that turn you on in one sense? You didn't want the temple to be destroyed, but the fact that the temple is being destroyed is a sign of what? It's going to happen next. Messiah is going to come and deliver the city. Okay? Now watch what Jesus does. In Matthew 24, he puts a spin on this thing. And the kind of spin that the Lord puts on this passage, the Zechariah Old Testament view, He does hear what the angel did in Daniel's day. Let's pause for a moment and review something in our minds. Daniel lived at the end of what period? The clock was running. Daniel was watching his clock. And he knew 70 years was about up. Right? The nation had gone into captivity in 586. 586 minus 70 is 516. So Daniel's sitting there in Babylon, in Iraq, and he's noticing the calendar, and he's saying, you know, I studied the prophecies of Jeremiah, and in 70 years, God's supposed to restore this nation. So he prays about it. And Daniel's not a fatalist. He's not some hyper-Calvinist that says, oh, 70 years, it's going to happen. Daniel knows his theology well enough to know that no restoration is going to happen if God is a God who is holy and just, and he was mad at Israel to kick him out. What's going to happen before Israel can come back in the land? They're going to have to repent. There's going to have to be an adjustment to the absolute holiness and righteousness of God. So Daniel confesses sin. And that's the whole passage in there. And he's confessing sin, saying, Lord, you know, uh, I'm ashamed of what my nation has done. We've, we've erred from your ways. We've violated your word. And he, he, he does a confession there. And then the angel shows up and he tells him, Daniel... It's going to be 70 times 7. So now, 
what appeared to be a 70-year rule, and it was verified because what happened in 586, they went into captivity. In 516, some of the nation came back and there was a partial restoration in 586. But the tribes that had gone out in 721, they were all scattered all over the place. There was only a partial restoration, but enough to validate the 70 literal years of Jeremiah's prophecy. But what the Lord does, he says there's going to be an, an, uh, the accordion is unfolding here and there's going to be a total of 490 years. So what did the Lord just do there through the angel Gabriel? He took a prophetic picture and he did this to it. He, he, he expanded it and dropped in more time into the prophecy. This you see over and over again. Think about it. Think of another one. Anybody can think of another illustration in the Old Testament where the same thing happened? Think about the Exodus when the nation of Israel was, was first born. In the original view of the Exodus, what should have happened? Take 40 years to get in the land or not? They should have walked into the land and conquered it right then. But what happened? They rebelled and messed around. And so God said, okay, generations messing around, stay out of here. You like the desert? Stay here for a while. And we'll wait until your children grow up and then be more mature than you are. And then they'll inherit the kingdom. Oh, okay. So the second conquest came under Joshua. This one was successful. And so now you had a 40-year intrusion into that original. Should have been a year or two. And here you have the same thing. You have 420 years injected into what appeared at first glance to be a 70-year period. Now we come to the diagram on the top of page 140. Now, I didn't draw the diagram well enough. That's why I'm making a point here tonight, because I want you to take your pens or pencils and make an adjustment in the diagram. What Jesus does is he takes, in the Jesus view... That second box, the I'll explain this in a minute. I just want you to draw a note on the chart. The second box on the Jesus view is injected between the first and second box of the Zechariah view. Okay? Jesus is talking about something that occurs in between those two boxes on the top. So the second box below should be is, is about is describing something that's happening in between box one and box two on the top row there. Then what I should have done, I should have five boxes on that second row. Box number two at the top should be brought down and put, uh, I should have put five boxes. It should be between box two and three on the bottom view. Okay. I left out the Messiah coming to rescue Allah because he's going to do that. Okay, now what has Jesus just done? He's done the accordion thing again. He's opened up history to say that the Gentiles are going to come against Jerusalem. Now, the first wave of Gentiles did come against Jerusalem in what year? When did they destroy Jerusalem, as the preterists say? A.D. 70, right? The Romans, the Gentiles, came against it. 
Now, that is expanded in Luke 21. That's the Lukean version. Luke 21 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24. But in the Luke passage, Luke is careful to include enough detail so we know that the Lord Jesus, when he talked about the Gentiles coming against Jerusalem, he included details that were unmistakably fulfilled in A.D. 70. However... Then Jesus goes on to say that in the last days there will be these earthquakes and so forth and then you will see the abomination spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Well, how can you have a prop, an abomination in a temple that's already been destroyed in A.D. 70? The temple's destroyed in A.D. 70. So if the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, how do you get it rebuilt and have this abomination happen inside it? And the answer is, well, there must be a period of time that lapses between the time that the Romans destroy the temple and the time the Lord Jesus comes back. Because prior to the Lord Jesus coming back, there's got to be this Antichrist guy. And not only does he have to be an Antichrist, Israel has to be in the land. Israel has to be in control of Jerusalem and Israel has to have a temple. So there's the man, Antichrist. And all that Jesus injects in between those, those two boxes. So the, the, the box number two below is Jesus' injection between boxes one and two above. Zechariah never saw that second box on the bottom row. The Zechariah passage doesn't have that in it. That's Jesus' addition. But when he added that, what when we just a few minutes ago, when we went through Matthew 24, I said, look in your text and see the Old Testament that he's quoting. What do we say that he's quoting from? Not Zechariah, but Daniel. So what is Jesus doing here? He's taking bits and pieces out of the Old Testament and organizing them for us and saying, guys, look at this. When you lay out all the individual prophecies and you start getting the pictures fit together, jigsaw puzzles coming together now. And what I'm telling you, disciples, he's saying, is that there's, a, there's an interim period here. So Jesus, in Matthew 24, is talking in terms of the Old Testament. He does inject time into the Old Testament position, but he's not injecting the church into the Old Testament position. How do I know that? Look at the paragraph on page 140 underneath figure 11. The Old Testament prophesied that God would scatter Israel to the four winds. It also prophesied that God would regather his elect nation from the four winds, one by one, accompanied by the sound of a great trumpet. That's the trumpet he's talking about in Matthew 24, verse 31. That's not talking about the rapture in verse 31. That's a reference to the Old Testament trumpets. And it's talking in terms of the Old Testament of his elect nation, who are what? Jews or Gentiles? What are, what are those elect that are being called by the great trumpet. They must be Jews, because that's what Deuteronomy is talking about. That's what Zechariah is talking about. So they're talking about Jews coming back, the elect. The scenario is Israel's, not the churches. That's why we defend the position that Matthew 24 isn't talking about the church. It's an exposition of the Old Testament talking about Israel. 
And I mentioned, as I did last time, the next paragraph down there, I'd point out, if you want to see the difference, look at Revelation 2 to 3, which is directed to the church, and try to find anywhere in Revelation 2 and 3 a reference to Israel and this nation and the abomination of desolation and all the rest of it. It's not there. Because the church is commissioned to look for only one thing. Not the Antichrist in Jerusalem, not the temple in Jerusalem. Look for the blessed hope. And the blessed hope is the one day that all of a sudden the transformation happens. It's going to come without warning. It could happen tonight. It could happen a hundred years from now. But no warning. It will just happen. And it will happen when the body of Christ is finished. Somebody's going to get a big surprise when they lead the last person to the Lord. And when that last person is led to the Lord Jesus, and there's n number of believers in the body of Christ, and all the gifts are there, functioning, God blows the whistle, the game is over. That's it. That's the church's game. Now what happens? The church is removed from history. It's in resurrection body. And the world is left the way it was in Pentecost, before Pentecost. Now, what happens? You revert back to the conditions where you have Jew and Gentile. And that's exactly what you see in the book of Revelation. Revelation is, as though in verse chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, it's like it reverts right back to the Old Testament, citing Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage about Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. 144,000 who? Jews from every tribe. Now, where do you get that talk in the New Testament epistles? You don't see that. You don't talk about Jewish tribes, you know, other than Paul talking about his biography. You don't see that kind of language in the New Testament epistles directed to the church. The whole purview of Revelation, once you get through the church period there, is it's all, it, it reverts. It goes back to the Old Testament picture. Okay, next thing on page 140 is Second Thessalonians. So let's turn to Second Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, verse 1, 2 and 3, here's a passage that is also said to negate pre-tribulationism. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a messenger or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no man in any way deceive you, for it won't come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Remember, while I was with you, I was telling you these things. In the first Thessalonians, he's talking about a rapture. So people say, well, if the rapture occurred before the day of the Lord, why in, in this passage, in Second Thessalonians, doesn't he Notice verse 1. It says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our what? Our gathering together with him. What do you suppose that is? That's the vocabulary of 1 Thessalonians. That's the gathering together. So Paul has the rapture on his mind. Now he says there's a lie or a deceiving doctrine that's come in and 
these people are kind of quitting their jobs and thinking that all I have to do is sit around because the, the day of the Lord's here and it's useless to deal with anything and so forth. And he's saying that's not going to happen until the, the abomination of desolation. Talking about the same thing in Matthew 24. Don't you remember I was teaching you these things? So the picture here is that you have a seven-year period and Paul says that you don't have to to these people that are upset now. He's saying, look, he says, what you're talking about is what's going to happen over here. And I told you all about that because he, he outlined, taught the Old Testament prophecies. It's going to happen over here. You guys are out here. Now he's talking about, I beseech you by the coming of the Lord and our gathering together with him. That is the rapture. So the rapture is out here. And the question is, why doesn't he talk about the rapture and use that as the answer to this heresy problem? Well, now, if you look in the notes on page 141, several observations. What was their problem? They thought that a special time had come that endangered their safety. Whether this special time was the familiar day of the Lord or some portion of it, the textual evidence varies. By the way, there is a textual variant here. And the textual variant occurs in verse 2 at the end where it says, the day of the Lord. The received text doesn't have day of the Lord. It has day of Messiah there. Different term. So that is a clue that we've got another problem going on in this passage. We can't just drive in at 40 miles an hour and think we've got this ace. There's something else going on here. Because there's ambiguity in the manuscripts over what this thing is that the Thessalonians were upset about. Perhaps this day of the Messiah was thought to be a special time of tribulation that the rumor claimed had come about already ahead of the actual day of the Lord. If so, one can understand why Paul would not have bothered to use the pre-trib rapture argument. He was battling a view that would have had this day of the Messiah out ahead of both the rapture and the day of the Lord. The logical refutation required that he show that this day of the Messiah was not going to precede the day of the Lord, but was in fact to occur after the revelation of the Antichrist. So these folks have an idea that this thing is happening the here, this is where it should happen. They've got it back way out here. That's happening right now. And Paul says it's not happening right now. It's not going to happen until after the Antichrist does his thing. So you've got it all mixed up here. Furthermore, if I were a post-trib, I'd have a similar problem. The problem of Second Thessalonians 2 is that we don't understand what was troubling the Thessalonians in the first place. That is not clear. And the fact that it has for centuries not been clear shows you because the guys that copy the text were hedging here. Some of them said, this is the day of the Lord they're talking about. And others said, no, no, this is day of Messiah. And they're not using the same vocabulary. So there's a little confusion about what this thing was that was troubling the Thessalonians. But let's suppose we are a post-trib or we're, we believe the church is going to go through the tribulation. Well, if the church is going to go through the tribulation and this period is happening, the church should be all excited because what's going to happen next? The rapture in this position, because the rapture in the post-trib position occurs here. So if they're already in this position, then the rapture should happen. He should say, well, you shouldn't be bothered because the rapture is going to happen anyway. 
So anyway, the point I'm making in the next paragraph is whether some subtly involving a special day of Messiah is involved here or not, the critics of pre-tribulationism have the same problem. Here is why. If a critic is a post-tribulationist, he either holds to a rapture before a very short day of the Lord. Remember the view? They have to collapse the day of the Lord down to the last five minutes of the seven-year period. Why do they have to do that? Because if they have the day of the Lord for any longer period of time, the church has exposed the wrath of God. So they've got to compress the wrath of God down to that last five minutes. Okay. So they either hold to that, or he holds to a rapture in the day of the Lord. If the former view, then he has exactly the same problem as the pre-tribulationist. Why the silence of Paul, since he should have reminded the Thessalonians they would be raptured before the coming very short day of the Lord? If the latter view, then the Thessalonians should not have been upset at all since the rapture was imminent. Mid-tribulationists and three-quarter tribulationists both have the same problem as the former post-tribulationist view. The bottom line is that we don't understand enough about the rumor that troubled the Thessalonians to be able to extract from this text any information about the timing of the rapture favoring any of the views. They all have a problem with this position, not just the pre-trib. We wouldn't have a problem with it if we knew what was going on in the minds of the Thessalonians, and this scripture seems to be vague there. So 2 Thessalonians is not a crux only for the pre-trib. It's a crux for all views. Furthermore, there is also an argument that in verse 3, the word apostasy could refer to the rapture because that word means the departure. And it can be a departure in the sense departing from the faith. That's how it gets the name apostasy. And by the way, all Bible translations up until about the time of the last 200 years translated that word not as apostasy, but translated as a departure. So it's interesting, back in the days of Roman Catholicism, the translators were translating this as the departure. Now, what they meant by that, we could argue, but some believe, I think the evidence is ambiguous. I haven't made up my mind yet about that word in verse 3. But there are many expositors of Scripture that believe that is the rapture. If that's the case, then we don't have any problem. Because what he's saying is, the rapture comes first, then the man of lawlessness is revealed. That could be the interpretation of that passage. Okay, enough for 2 Thessalonians 2. You just want to be acquainted with Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2. That There is some, some, a lot of study that has to be involved in these two passages. Finally, down the bottom of 141... We have the last objection to pre-tribulationism is that it's escapist. Now, this is the easiest answer. While sounding pious, this argument actually misleads Christians to misunderstand the purposes of suffering. By definition, the church is that group of humanity who have not rejected Israel's Messiah. That's the definition of a Christian. And therefore cannot be accused of that sin. But it is that sin that brings the tribulation judgments upon Jews and Gentiles alike. The church suffers indeed, as Christ did, but for different reasons in different ways. Christians suffer persecution and onslaughts of Satan because of their identification with Christ in the fallen world. They are the only part of Christ available to Satan to attack. That's why the church suffers. 
The church doesn't suffer, by the way, globally at the same time. It suffers in certain regions, geographic regions, but other geographic regions is free. Why is that? Because we're not in the tribulation. It's only in the tribulation when suffering is global, and then the church isn't involved, because why? Because the suffering in the tribulation is of a different purpose. The suffering of the church is to edify and build it up. The suffering of the world in the tribulation is judgment. It's not discipline, it's judgment. Different cause, different purpose, different suffering. The, the pre-trib position is not arguing that the church doesn't suffer. All the pre-trib is, guy is doing is he's saying that the suffering the church now faces is of a different nature and purpose than the suffering of the tribulation. He's distinguishing between sufferings. He's not saying there's no suffering today. It's not escapist to argue for pre-trib rapture. You could extend the thinking and say, oh, well, salvation of the gospel, getting out from hell, that's escapism. We ought to go through hell and feel a little fire. Anybody argue that way? No. Well, then why are you arguing this way when you say for a pre-trib position that it's escapist? It's a silly argument. Okay, now, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look down at the bottom of that page, and I, in that small diagram there, uh, summarize the seven or eight years that we've been in class. And we're going to go through that in one night, in that framework, and I'm going to try to show you how you can use that in various applications. Um, some of you joined later in later years, but had you been here from the beginning, we, you would have seen us going through all these. These are key events. They're key events in Scripture. And as I said when I introduced this series, there's three themes that we've tried to emphasize. Remember I said this is not a class in a biblical exegesis. Nor is this a class in apologetics. Nor is this a class in systematic theology. But this class has all three of those in it. Because I've mixed them together. In other words, I, I don't uh, artificially separate the two. And I do that for a reason. I came to this frame of reference when I was working with people who had come out of the hippie communes of Colorado who had absolutely no understanding. I early on saw, uh, Francis Schaeffer helped me see this, but I, I started to see it early on, both with respect to Genesis 1, not being understood by Christians, Christians being intimidated by Darwin, and then seeing that people, when my wife and I were in Dallas years and years ago, never forget an incident where Carol was uh, into child evangelism. She knew some of the things. And we lived in an apartment, and this little boy, wasn't that a boy? A boy came to the door, and we were uh, had to take care of him because his mother was working out somewhere, and his kid was, was all alone. And uh, so Carol started talking to him about Jesus kid looked up at her like she talked about some fairy from Mars and asked, who is she? Well, when uh, we had that response, we realized we can't start with Jesus. We've got to go back further. And that's the whole purpose of this framework. You have to go back. That's what the missionaries have found in Papua New Guinea. They, they had a mess up there where they evangelized this tribe and they found out just as soon as the tribe got into a mess, they reverted to their pagan practices. 
And I said, what is this? You know, we sat here for years and witnessed about Jesus and witnessed about the gospel, translated scriptures here and there. And these people just don't get it. It's syncretistic. They've got a syncretism here. And so they did an analysis on the mission field back in the mid-80s. Neutronized Mission did this. And they came to the conclusion these people never understood the gospel in the first place. And why didn't they understand the gospel in the first place? Because we screwed up in our evangelistic methodology. We did not explain, we failed as Christians to explain and communicate the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, these people either aren't born again or they're just little baby Christians being blown about by every wind of doctrine. So they resolved at that point to deal with this problem. And how they dealt with it was revert to saying, if it took God the Holy Spirit 66 books to get to the gospel and get it straight, we're not going to be doing evangelism in five and a half minute presentation. We have to take it as slow as is necessary. doesn't mean you have to go through all 66 books. Don't get me wrong. What they're saying is we have to go back to creation and understand who God is. Don't get that straight. Kiss the rest of it off. You're never going to get it right. So now on the bottom, on the page 142, you'll see, what do I start? What was the first event we did years and years ago? We did creation. And what did we associate with that event? God, man, and nature. Now you have to start there, right? All the stuff about saving and sin and fall depends we understand who God, man, and nature is. So you have to have those basic categories straight in your head. Or everything else goes down the tubes. So that's why we start with creation. We don't start with Matthew. We start with Genesis. And that's what they found. And that's what I found. And so my burden has been, first, to speak of these as events of history. I don't speak of them as Bible stories. And the way I believe that you have to deal with this, with the people you talk to, and you come in contact with. You cannot just talk in terms of the Bible. Now you talk, yes you do, you talk in terms of the Bible, but with related to geology, related to science, such that when they hear you talk about Genesis 1 and God created the world, they don't have some image, well that's just a religious story. We had a big gas cloud on there, and then later on, people said, well, let's, let's make a sweet story up about how this whole universe came to being. And I got a religious story. And I respect your Bible. It's a nice religious storybook. What have you done if you've allowed that thinking? You just set them up to totally misunderstand the gospel. So unless you get it straight from the start that the creation, we're talking about the in the beginning was God, not gas. And you have to state it either or sometimes for people to get it. Well, I don't believe that. Well, then put on the brakes and let's just talk about it. No sense running on and talking about the fall and sin and blood atonement because they're never going to get that. And if it takes you three years of discussion of Genesis 1 and 2, take three years to discuss Genesis 1 and 2. Don't go on until they understand God, man, and nature. Now, this is, this is hard for us to do because we want to rush. We want to help people. We want to get in there and stop the suffering and straighten their lives out. That's a Christian compassion. But our compassion can get in the way of truth sometimes. 
And the result is, what we do is we set up a false dealing with the problem that falls apart later on. So, we're going to next week deal with those events on the left side of that diagram. We're going to go through every single one of them, and I'm going to tie them to the doctrine that's on the right side. Because associated with every one of those events is a concept of truth that the Bible teaches. And if you associate those things with a events on the left, what do you do? Now you've created a rational consistency in your head between these real events and these real truths. So now, just from what I've said, and we're running three, four minutes over, but I just want to finish this point. All I've talked about in the last five minutes is the bottom event, haven't I? And on the right side of that event, you saw three words. God, man, and nature. Now, if you learn this properly, and you learn to relate God, man, and nature to the act of creation, the act of creation, not just the story of creation, the physical, cosmic act of creation. If you learn to associate that, what's going to happen if somebody comes along and denies the cosmic act of creation? If you associate God, man, and nature with a cosmic act, and the act goes away, what also goes away? Your doctrine of God, man, and nature. See what, see what I'm getting at? So if you go in, and, so, and Americans are all confused on this. They think you can be a creationist, uh, a Christian, an evolutionist. If you're an evolutionist, you don't have a concept of God, man, and nature. I'm sorry. It's floating in thin air. You have no basis whatsoever for human rights. You, know, you have no more right in a maggot. Because you're part and parcel of an amorphous, evolving universe. You've lost it. You've lost the benefits of talking about the dignity of man, truthfulness of his ideas, and moral judgments. Because you lost the event that those link to. They're interdependent. Said another way in conclusion tonight, erase the left side of this diagram and you've destroyed the right side. You can't get the right side if you don't have the left side. And if we don't teach people this, we're going to have people that are schizos, theological and spiritual schizophrenics that live with one foot in the Bible and the other foot in the world and are perpetually confused the rest of their days. Trying to live first in one world, then the other one, then this world, then this one. And they feel split up. Well, of course they feel split up because they don't have a unified view of truth. And that's what this is all about. God is a rational God who has a unified field of truth. When he speaks of this, he means this. And it's all woven together as one story. It's not pieces. It's not marbles rolling around. There's a coherence to the scriptures. And this is the coherence that we need. People substitute other things for this coherence. And that's one reason I, I feel very strongly that the revival of Reformed theology, which you can explain in ten minutes with the five points, people think they've got coherence in that theology. And it's attractive because people want coherence in a society that's fallen apart. There's a natural gravitation to coherence. But that's the wrong location of the coherence. It's not a theological system like that. It's in this biblical story from beginning to end. That's where the coherence is between science, history, literature, whatever field of knowledge you're in, and these stories. These are not isolated. You cannot compartmentalize the Bible and say that that's religious, like the lawyers in the ACLU are saying. 
And uh, we might just conclude tonight with a silly, silly thing going on in our Congress right now. This week, the Bush is going to nominate Owens again. And the objection of Owens, as a judge by the lefties, is that, oh, well, her personal beliefs affect the way she judges. No kidding! My personal belief that thievery is wrong is going to influence me. Too bad. Isn't that sorry? See? So it's a silly idea. Like their personal beliefs about abortion isn't influencing their agenda to filibuster the candidate? Come on. You know, we're big boys and girls. Let's grow up. Stop the being phonies. And let's let it all hang out. And, and that's what we need to do. So you have your beliefs. That's fine. And they collide here. And you've got to support this candidate because this candidate honors life. And you guys that don't believe, you believe in death, the death culture people, then you need death culture judges. Of course, understand that. But when you put it that way, people don't like that because they don't want to tie their personal beliefs to these moral judgments they're making all the time. So we'll go through this, and it's a, it's a way of looking at it, but that's the, that's the design behind all this. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that the biblical story has this internal coherence to it. It's a very powerful thing, not because we've dreamed it up, but because it's the revelation of your pedagogical principle over the 66 books of Scripture. It's how you have revealed yourself, and we thank you that we can have a firm foundation for our faith. We thank you now through your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Stay over tonight, but I had to conclude by tying that in for next week. Um, okay, so we have a limited time tonight for questions. Any questions? No questions. Worn, uh, maybe everybody's worn out. Yeah, he just sent me the statement of uh, D. James Kennedy on Israel, entitled "Replacement Theology at Work." But we're going to see that. That's why I'm warning you ahead of time that we'll undoubtedly see a, a split here developing. Ezekiel. The temple during the millennial kingdom is believed to be Ezekiel because it's the temple that is of the design in Ezekiel is not the temple, doesn't correspond to any temple ever made. That's why liberal critics of the Bible say it's uh, Ezekiel. First of all, among liberal scholars, Ezekiel is looked upon either as a conglomeration of various writers or is looked upon as a man who... Um, needed some serious psychiatric help. And therefore, his, the content of his books, are, are, it's, the, it's the rantings of a psychologically unbalanced person. Um, and Ezekiel was kind of strange. God called him to do strange things. But, you know, I mean, he used him. Um, but that, that, that's the book for, to which the Jews today in Jerusalem who want to rebuild the temple are using. 
and getting very serious about designing things for that temple. Yeah, that's a good question. It comes up all the time. Um, if you read Ezekiel and you talk about a temple that has sacrifices and we hold to a literal hermeneutic so we can't symbolize it, then there's literal sacrifices happen in the Millennial Kingdom. Well, what's their function when the blood of, blood of bulls and goats takes not sin away? Lord Jesus on Calvary has already taken away sin, including the sin of the people that live in the Millennial Kingdom. Why do we have this... Uh, this practice going on when it's been done away with, you know, and at the time the church started. Um, the, uh, of course, it was done away actually when the temple was destroyed. But the, the, um, you have to deduce what the purpose is from the fact that it's there. It's continued. It's continued. You have Hebrews telling us that the practice does not take away sin. But it is a sin offering, and it may have two... I think it has two functions. Um, I think it has an actual um, social and political function like it did in the Old Testament. And we mustn't forget this. In the Old Testament, if you were physically not clean, uh, either because you touched a corpse, because you uh, didn't have your latrine on the outside of the camp, um, and if you did not uh, offer a sacrifice, you were considered unclean and not welcome in the community. It was part of the political identity of the people in that day, whether they were believers or not. It didn't matter whether you're a believer or not. The rules of the society, the rules of the community were that we have hygiene here. And you don't want to follow the hygiene? Get out of here. So it was an exclusion principle. Now, we can look at that as Christians and say, um, well, there's a spiritual lesson in that. God's a holy God and he doesn't want uncleanness. And we can say behind that rule, that social rule, there was a revelation of a spiritual principle. And that's true. But there was a social rule there that you didn't play around with it. And I think it's the same thing in the Millennial Kingdom, that uh, those sacrifices are protocols of the how the whole political social structure is run. And it's not going to run without them. And everybody will be required to do that, whether they believe in the Lord or not, just like in the Old Testament. They will be required to do that. And you can say, well, well you know, that ignores whether they're believers or not. That's right. But that's an imposition of a social function above the king, and that's what he wants to reveal. So he designs the social structures to be revelatory in that sense, which gets us now to the second thing. There's a spiritual thing in it, and that's the shock of substitutionary death. Now, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell, and they heard the word of Satan and God, both of them, talking about this thing called D-E-A-T-H, could either Adam or Eve have known the meaning of the word D-E-A-T-H. How would they have known what that word means? They only, you know, they could only imagine what it must mean in some sort of separating sense. Now God comes into the garden, and what does he do to provide the skins? God had to kill an animal. 
in front of both of them. So they could watch the animal die and the blood spill out. Now that must have been a frightening, awful thing for creatures who had never known death to see, of all things, their God and Creator take an animal and destroy it in front of their face. we, We make it too gentle. It was a bloody mess. And I believe that God uses that in the Millennial Kingdom to remind people what sin does. We need... I mean, we talk about reality TV here. Right? Going on? Everybody wants reality TV. It's okay. You have reality TV. We'll have blood sacrifice in the temple. You like to see blood? Let's say it. Remind you what I went through, says the king. So, I believe that it's a shocking, bloody, messy thing that's part of life in the fallen world. By the way, that also shows you that the Millennial Kingdom is populated by mortal people, isn't it? That's an argument for a physical, political kingdom that you have this going on, because you're not going to have it going on in the eternal state. So you have it going on in this physical, messianic kingdom as a revelatory channel of the gospel. Worldwide, people are going to have to do it. They're going to have to see it repeatedly, day after day after day after day. And they will have enough doctrine, hopefully, the king's there. Uh, at least the Israelis will have uh, light of knowledge. There won't be anybody that needs to teach them and so forth. Um, there'll be universal salvation in some areas. And these people will know. Yeah, you know, I look at that and that's what the king had to do. So I think it's a teaching device. And I think today, when we talk about reality TV, it's a good way of using it if you want to explain to somebody. And say, oh, it's, it's Jesus reality TV for people. I don't understand it. Yes, Debbie? How do the Gentile nations fit in the Millennial Kingdom there? Well, we know that they bring tribute to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the world capital. And so there's political um, homage that is done to the king. The king will be king of all nations, not just of Israel. And so there will be the relationship. As time goes on, who will be born? There will be babies born. And those babies have to be led to the Lord. Spiritually, they have to believe or they're not going to be believers. And so they'll be creeping unbelief in the population until at the very end of the kingdom, what happens? Satan is loosed for a season. And, and we have revolt. Right? You, you were saying that in the beginning of the uh, there was only going to be unbelievers. Un- only believers. Oh, oh, okay. At the beginning of the millennium. What about the tribulation? That was unbelievers. Right? You're right. Because the rapture took out. Well, who's going to teach the believers? When? At Millennium. In other words, if there was unbelievers at, at, uh, at the <clears throat> uh, tribulation, it goes to seven years of that. But where is the believers going to be in the millennium? Because they will have become Christians during the tribulation. During the tribulation, people get saved. 
Just like today they get saved. Well, the Holy Spirit's gone in the sense that he his he uh, re, go back and look at how the Holy the Holy Spirit has had three um, three operating centers in history. Today we're spoiled because the Holy Spirit indwells the church, and He works through the church laterally and horizontally by the gospel outreach. But let's go back back into the previous age. In the previous age, the Holy Spirit did not indwell all Israel because Jesus said to the disciples, He hasn't indwelt. He's come with you. He's accompanied. But the Holy Spirit didn't actually live inside of believers in the Old Testament. He had a different operating scheme, a different policy. That's why when you go from age to age, policies change. God doesn't change, but His policies change. So just as his policies change from pre-Israel, when the Holy Spirit worked with different nations, then he worked almost exclusively with Israel, then he works with the church, indwelling it, and now in the tribulation, how does the Holy Spirit work? Well, he leaves in the sense that the church is gone. His temple, the thing that he indwells, is gone. So the Holy Spirit works presumably like he worked in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, he had many different ways of working. Strange things happen in the tribulation. And we don't know what, what all, how it happens. For example, the world is evangelized by angels speaking in voices that the whole global population hears. Well, how does that happen? I have no idea. And somehow that happens. So the Holy Spirit has numerous other ways other than the church. All of, when we say the Holy Spirit's absent from the tribulation, we mean the church is removed. Not that the Holy Spirit, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. But it's just that his base of operations is no longer on earth for the church. How will he what? Well, he's poured out in the millennium because that's the Joel prophecy. Yeah. Remember prior to that, the day of the Lord, he pours out to prophesy. Presumably the Holy Spirit is very, very active in the millennial kingdom. But, but the w- way to think about it, rather than get lost in the forest, uh, in the trees, and lose the forest, the way to think about this is think through the Trinity. Just keep the Trinity in mind. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which person of the Trinity is always the content of Revelation? Second person. You visualize, uh, uh, if, you, if this is hard, here's a way to visualize the Trinity in their functions. Think of God, the Word, and the Spirit. Now, when you think of mental content, content, information, you go to the Word. So, the content of Revelation is always centered on which person of the Trinity? The second person who reveals things about the first person. But he is the center of the revelation. He's the vehicle of it. The third person of the Trinity works so as to glorify the second person of the Trinity. So the Lord Jesus was glorified by the Holy Spirit working among people. 
So if you keep the Father, Son, and Spirit, they always have this processional order to how they work. And it'll help you think this through. Um, it will help you avoid some charismatic extremists who talk endlessly about the Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that, the Holy Spirit this, and the Holy Spirit that, as though the Holy Spirit reveals things about himself. But the Holy Spirit isn't here to reveal things about himself. Jesus said, he takes of mine and shall show it unto you. So, the Holy Spirit's function is to glorify Jesus, not glorify himself. So, where you have this undue exaltation among the Holy Spirit, you actually have a violation of the doctrine of Trinity there going on. So, concluding, uh, uh, George, in, in, the, in the Millennial Kingdom, the Holy Spirit, whatever he does, and you, you can glimpse from the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Joel, and those prophetic books, the Holy Spirit is very active in the Millennial Kingdom. But we know ahead of time what he's going to be doing. He's going to be exalting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's going to have to communicate to millions and millions of people that have grown up in the Millennial Kingdom and have never known another kind of history. I mean, the people that grow up in the Millennial Kingdom are going to be very spoiled people. They never have a war, don't know what the military is about, have no concept of what kind of suffering climate, famines, earthquakes, they're going to read about in their history books. Little kids will go to school in the Millennial Kingdom and they read about these strange things that used to happen in history back in those days. I mean, think about it. You want a good mental exercise? to be, Imagine, write, write, a, write yourself a story about what it would be like to be a parent in the Millennial Kingdom. What would you teach your kids in the Millennial Kingdom? And, and suppose you had lived through the Tribulation and you, you were one of the pioneers in the Millennial Kingdom and now you have babies and you're raising these kids, and you're trying to communicate to them what, what was life like before Jesus came. And you're trying to tell them about famines. And they're going to say, Mommy, Daddy, can you tell me what a famine is? We never saw a famine. You know, we look at television or whatever they're going to have in those days, and no famines on the weather report. So how do you teach them about a famine? How do you teach them about a war? What did they used to do? They had what? Wars they had? When they have those? Why did people kill each other? What was going on then that made people do that? Satan wasn't there. Satan was there. He's not here now. Satan is with three John. And the big major point should make that clear. Who was removed? Not the Holy Spirit may be quote removed in the tribulation, but who's removed in the millennial kingdom? Who's been in prison for a thousand years? Satan and all of his demonic powers. So what you have is a cutback on energy for sin. People still have the flesh. People are still going to sin in the Millennial Kingdom. But it won't. what you'll have if you could take a camera, a video camera, and record, say, the life of Joe Snodgrass or something, and he lives in 3rd Downing Street somewhere in the new Millennial Kingdom, and, um, and you follow this guy around, you can see he's a sinner. But what you will not see is this powerful force that comes in almost addictively and, and takes people's lives over and really screws them up. Sin is there, but not with the intensity that we see it. And it will indeed must be strange for people to live in those days to come and, not, and, and try to think of what we're living in and really wonder, how did, what did you guys do back then? Right? 
gives you an interesting perspective. And you'll, in your mind's eye, if you'll try this imagination trip. TV? Yeah. Well, people still ask that now. When you only had radio, how boring. Um, but, but see, that's the kind of thing. And if you'll think these things through, just play with yourself in, in your mind's eye and try to think these things through. What you'll find is it'll deepen your appreciation for Scripture because now it will make you come back to the Scriptures thinking of it as more real. So try to place yourself in the millennial kingdom. You know? Write a three-page story of how I would raise kids in the millennial kingdom. Anyway, those are interesting things to think about. The Holy Spirit, the, the Word of God is unfathomable. I mean, you can have a mental journey in the Word of God that'll take you trips to all kinds of places. Uh, and you never have to leave your house. You just need to read the Word of God. It's all free. God's grace. So next week we'll, uh, we'll work back with the framework.